Hi, this is Franklin Graves, General Counsel for Nexus Music Group, and I'm excited to be joining and discussing legal issues with IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 81 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Franklin Graves, who is the general counsel of Naxos Music Group, and he is chatting with Ken about YouTube law. But before we jump into this interview, I have some news for you. The UPC, the Unified Patent Court, has just updated the timetable. It was envisaged that uh, the court would open the doors in December 2017, mainly due to the circumstances in the UK. The UPC now writes on their website that this date has been postponed and a new date cannot be given at the current time. However, the UPC confirms that they continue with recruiting the judges and testing the IT and the case management systems and that the resources are trained and in place before the UPC opens. Another important thing to know is that Amazon just launched the Amazon brand registry in other countries. It already had launched the Amazon brand registry in the US a couple of months ago and now rolls out Amazon brand registry in other countries like in European countries. What is Amazon Brand Registry? You can register your registered trademark, uh, so like a registered German trademark or EU trademark with Amazon. And then basically that has the effect that no other competitors or no other vendors or sellers can sell under your ID number for the product, the so-called ASIN, A-S-I-E-N. So that the sellers on Amazon basically have a guaranteed buy box and some other uh, advantages over their competitors if they register their trademark with Amazon. In return for these advantages, Amazon wants to know uh, some information about the brands, the trademarks. So for example, about the brand history and the distribution channels and the production locations and uh, some other information so that they can uh, they promise to actually uh, actively enforce these trademarks uh, on their platform and to improve the fight against counterfeit goods i have just completed the process of registering a trademark with uh, amazon brand registry just out of curiosity. So if you have questions, just uh, send me an email or contact me any other way and I will be happy to answer any questions you might have. I also just published a video about the Amazon brand registry. 
So if we go to YouTube and type in my name, Rolf Klesen, R-O-L-F-C-L-A-E-S-S, like Sam, E-N, and then go to my YouTube channel, you will find a video about the Amazon brand registry, and I'll take you through all the steps uh, how to register your trademark with the Amazon brand registry. Now let's jump into the interview with Franklin Graves. Rolf, our guest today on IP Fridays is Franklin Graves. Franklin is general counsel for Naxos Music Group, where he provides in-depth and wide-ranging legal guidance to a global media technology company with over 300 employees across more than a dozen regional offices around the world. Franklin currently serves as a Young Lawyer Fellow for the American Bar Association's Section of Intellectual Property Law, where he recently received an Outstanding Leadership Contribution Award. Franklin has published numerous articles across multiple publications, including the ABA's Landslide magazine, and frequently presents on intellectual property law and technology CLE panels with local and national bar associations. He is an active member of the Nashville Bar Association and the Tennessee Bar Association. Franklin earned his JD degree with a certificate in entertainment and music business law from Belmont University College of Law in Nashville, Tennessee and his B.A. degree from Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome, Franklin, to IP Fridays. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Excellent, Franklin. So, Franklin, we're going to talk about YouTube today and your recent article on YouTubers. What is YouTuber law and what makes it different from other areas of the law like IP or entertainment law? Yes, well, I like to think of YouTuber law as a a more narrow focus within entertainment law. Uh, I honestly think a better name <laughs> a better name would be internet creator law, since the term YouTuber is is very specific to just one platform. And honestly, uh, for the for the article that I wrote, it, it made a catchy title for the topic of the article that I co-authored with Michael Lee. So that, that's why I went with YouTuber law. Uh, so up for the remainder of this, I'll use the term internet creator law. Since okay. it's basically very similar to entertainment or sports law in that it's a uh, wide combination of many different areas of law, ranging from copyrights to contract to finance and to business, and how all of those laws are impacting the business models for online or digital influencers and creators. I would say where internet creator law becomes more complex is that it's a rapidly changing and constantly evolving focus for a practice because of the changing technology landscape. So we, we've seen uh, we've seen platforms completely disappear, like uh, like Vine, for instance, the video sharing platform that only allowed you to share up to five seconds of video. Yes. Uh, that helped launch the careers of, of many influencers, such as the platinum selling music artist Sean Mendez. So so these platforms are constantly changing, and that's kind of where I think, from my perspective, the fun of it all is, is kind of coming from. Is that you're, you're never you're never going to know what your the internet creator you're working with is going to be what platform they're going to be using and what's the next latest technology that's going to come from it and how that media landscape is going to be impacted. Now, Franklin, in your article, you discuss the importance of IP ownership. Can you walk through some of the areas of protection YouTuber clients should be watching out for? Yes, absolutely. So in the article specifically, we discuss multi-channel networks or MCNs is the acronym commonly used for those. Um, which are they're basically third-party companies that are not endorsed by Google or YouTube. And these companies, these third-party companies, MCNs, they partner with independent YouTube channels to provide additional services 
uh, often you'll see it in exchange for a revenue share of the ad revenue that that channel is able to generate. So MCMs are commonly based around a particular content style or topic, and those can be uh, something as simple as education or beauty topics or to the more common, um, more recently <laughs> more recently used Let's Play gaming video style where um, your listeners might be aware of those, especially if they probably have like younger kids. Uh, it's very common for people to spend, especially the younger generation, to spend countless hours watching other people play video games, uh, either on a streaming platform like Twitch or YouTube itself. Yes. Uh, those are called Let's Play videos. And those are a newer format where YouTubers are kind of earning revenue and trying to generate a revenue model. Um, and it's kind of interesting how they're able to do that. And the game, the game developers <laughs> are also trying to figure out how they can monetize, aside from the promotional um, benefit from their videos being streamed, their, their video games being streamed, uh, how they can take part in that monetization aspect of Let's Play videos. Mm -hmm. Now, YouTube recently came under fire recently, as you detailed in your discussion at the beginning of May of this year on an episode of This Week in Law, uh, which is an online program. What should attorneys be watching out for when advising their clients uh, that are YouTubers or other Internet content creators? Well, we could spend an entire show talking about the advertising advertising boycotts or the ad pools that many YouTubers are currently experiencing on the platform. Uh, And as you mentioned, I think I covered a lot of this in depth over on Denise Howell's show this week in law. But to answer your question about advising clients, which I'm sure many of your listeners are in the habit of doing, um, I would say to make sure that we are educating our clients that are that are oftentimes young internet creators about the importance of diversifying their income streams. Um, a lot of a lot of our uh, older, not so fresh uh, into the market creators that we work with. If you're an IP attorney, they kind of understand the importance of diversifying, um, and we saw that happen with authors in the early days of Amazon's Kindle program. And now we're actually seeing it happen on YouTube where content creators are losing ad revenue that much of their entire business model is built upon. Uh, that's why, for instance, you'll see you might if you Google and, and look into the recent happenings of YouTubers, um, PewDiePie is one of the very um, – he is actually the most uh, popular YouTuber on the channel or on the – he has a channel that's the most popular channel on YouTube um, – and he, he actually is leaving the YouTube platform for the most part to move over to Amazon's the Twitch platform, which is owned by Amazon, because he has more, more support and ability to mon- generate uh, an income from that. But um, sorry, getting back to the point, though, we're, we're, we're seeing other platforms, as I mentioned, like Twitch and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. Um, they're taking that ever finite number of eyeballs away from platforms like YouTube. Um, but at the same time, they're demanding the same type of content or the same uh, same investment in the creation of content from the creators without offering a monetization option in return. Uh, so for instance, when an internet creator that uploads a video they've created to YouTube, they're able to monetize that video and share on the ad revenues through Google's AdSense program on platforms like Facebook and Instagram. Those same monetization options are simply not available um, at this time that we're talking um, yet the newer platforms, as I said, are, are rapidly growing and where a large percentage of the activity is taking place from the viewership side of things. Now, when you talk about diversification, uh, are we just talking about going on other platforms? What are, what are some of the concrete tools that, that are available to diversify? Yeah, certainly. So there are a couple of 
prominent YouTubers, and and I know a lot of people outside of the realm, <laughs> people that aren't part of the younger generation that are that are spending their vast majority of their time on the YouTube platform watching videos, are not familiar with some of the bigger names like Grace Helbig or Hannah Hart. Um, but those those are two examples of two creators that have branched out and have book deals. Book deals are a huge um, revenue source for YouTubers. Um, so you're seeing them go towards more traditional formats. And actually, I'm blanking on her name, but there was there's a the New York Times bestseller um, either the past week or the week before. More recently, however, has has actually been a YouTuber. She created a um, and she's actually on Jimmy Fallon, I think. Her name, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but she had the boss book. Um, I'm blanking on it. But anyways, that, so you're seeing a lot a lot of diversification in terms of releasing book and getting book publishing deals. Um, there wasn't. There are some instances where YouTubers have made the jump over to a traditional television network, um, either a cable platform like Grace Helbig, like I mentioned, had her show on E! Network. Um, and then there are a couple other YouTubers that have, garnered um, some publicity for having successful shows on uh, network or cable television channels. Uh, and then on top of that, it's just making sure that they are aware of, of other opportunities. Like on Instagram, they can do, they can do um, deals for uh, hawking a product or something like that, where they can get investment and endorsement deals. That's the term I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So endorsement deals are a great, great way for them to kind of branch out and, and ex expand beyond just relying on the AdSense revenue from the Google and YouTube platform. I see. So having multiple streams of income coming in through book deals and, and product sponsorships and that type of thing. Exactly. And even, even appearances. I mean, I hate to use them as an example, but the Kardashians are a great example of how they've built this brand and created a global empire out of themselves. Even like they've created their own brand based on themselves without, for for lack of a better argument, any other talent. Um, they, they are talented business people, but that's kind of what we're seeing is this need to diversify and, and get off of just one source of revenue, which has in the past been Google AdSense. Interesting. So, Franklin, let's switch gears to copyright and IoT, or as we call it, Internet of Things. Tell us how these two intersect, since most people are, are probably familiar with other legal issues surrounding IoT, such as patents or privacy regulations. Yes, definitely. So I've had the pleasure of attending the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in Las Vegas a couple of years um, prior, and that's really where I experienced the um, Internet of Things or IoT technologies up close and in person. And and so it, it, Internet of Things is a very popular buzzword and a lot of smart objects are, or a lot of objects, everyday objects are being turned into smart objects. So I'm sure, I, I, would, I would think that listeners of the show are familiar with the baseline understanding of what Internet of Things is. Yeah. Um, but what I'll focus on is the intersection with copyright and and that's kind of been where um, the article that I published in the ABA's Landslide magazine as well kind of highlighted some of this. And so from a copyright standpoint, corporations are using it for many different ways. And one of those is maintaining a corporate control. So it's, it's a variety of high and low points um, in terms of how this has happened. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of the interesting thing is so they've used something as simple as computer computer code saying that the computer code that runs a car for instance they own the copyright to that and you are not allowed to tinker with it or create a derivative work um, without 
permission and you're basically signing a license to use that code when you're buying or leasing a car. And so you don't have the right to do anything with it or tinker with it. And so that's, that's one avenue. And another has been with um, kind of like, I guess the, the K cup pod example, the green mountain um, coffee roasters. I think they might have a different corporate name now, if I'm not mistaken, but either way, the K cup. So everybody's familiar with, they used uh, copyright protections to make it to where you had to have a, an official K cup pod at one point to work in their new um, Keurig brewing systems. Um, but then that, the the backlash I mentioned and alluded to this earlier has kind of been ups and downs throughout this process. The backlash, the public backlash has been incredible or was incredible when they tried to do that. And so they kind of quickly revert, reversed um, their decision on implementing that. So, so it's very interesting. And that's kind of where you see copyright coming into play. Yeah, now, Franklin, um, I, on the subject of the IoT, I'm interested in your thoughts about you know future legal issues or trends uh, that you're forecasting because this is definitely something that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the coming years. Yes, definitely. And so the future, it's it, I think you alluded to this as well the inter, the security and privacy aspect to it, yeah. and I think that that's going to be a lot of where the issues in the future stem from. So if if somebody is allowed to tinker with their car, who is liable for? any damages that occur, any accidents that occur as a result of that tinkering. Um, and, I, and I think you have examples of that already. Like anybody can go ahead and, and add um, add-ons and build onto their car. And obviously the original manufacturer in most cases wouldn't be liable for an accident that occurs due to those changes. But I think that because it is technology and because it is um, software code in some instances that is being manipulated here, it, there is a concern about the security for the systems. And I'm sure some of your listeners might have heard or read um, about a year ago, maybe or, or so, where I think it was there was one car manufacturer who it was some do-gooders, some um, legal hackers, if you will, uh, hacked into a car that was driving on the interstate and um, were able to control it remotely. And so those types of situations are where we're really going to see some issues coming about. And and under the terms of the current agreements that you have with a car manufacturer, for instance, you, you don't have the right to do those types of things because of copyright laws. And so that's where I think the, the, the future is going to be going. It can be a dangerous future or it can be a positive future in terms of allowing others to get under the hood, um, no pun intended, of, of these things and try to figure out what's going on and where security issues are and where where hackers can get in and kind of tinker with code or, or expand upon it that kind of thing. I think there's a lot to be done and a lot to be um, policy-wise to be generated and discussed still with the Internet of Things and copyright. Interesting, uh, Franklin. Before we close, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you're you're the general counsel uh, of, a, of a really important uh, music company, Naxos Music Group. Tell us, what are some of the things that you're seeing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis that uh, is intriguing to some sort uh, or, or you're finding uh, new new issues that you're encountering uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so, so yes, I, I work for a music company, and, and part of the reason why I, I, it might sound weird to some people as to why I'm talking about Internet of Things and why I would even go to the Consumer Electronics Show, yeah. um, but the reality, the reality is technology has had such a huge impact on not just the music industry, but the entertainment and media industry as a whole. And I think, we're, I think anybody that follows any types of just up-to-date with reading news understands 
the the issues that have been happening with revenue and everything from the use of technology and how it's completely changed the landscape for the recorded music industry. And so that's really where my company, I think, strides and why I was really excited to start here right after law school. Um, I'm coming up on three years now that I've been with the company in August, but um, it's been really exciting to see and be a part of a company that is embracing streaming technologies and, and even has had streaming platforms of its own. Like we've operated multiple streaming platforms, both audio only and video, as well as um, variations and audiobook um, variations of that over the years. And so that's what I really enjoy. And what I really love is the technology aspect of, of how, to, well, I guess how technology impacts so many different areas now. And that's really where it's important to stay abreast of issues of what's going on and, and to understand um, not just not just technology, but the underlying workings of it. So if you can, if you can take a coding class and learn, learn the basics of coding, like what are open and closing tags, even St simple stuff like that will really help prepare um, the prepare attorneys for being a part of the technology changes that are coming. And, and I think we've seen that as music industry. So in my day to day practice, I, I oversee a lot of relationships with our big streaming partners, as well as small ones that are starting up. And I think that's really um, you, you asked about the future of the industry, and, and I think that's really where, where we're struggling is to see where the revenue is going to come from. But luckily, I think that we're, we're, hitting, we're hitting the right targets in terms of recognizing that the more people that are subscribing on a monthly basis to music, the more revenue pools we'll have to generate and share profits from both with companies like Spotify or Apple Music or Deezer, ones that are overseas. Um, out, outside of the U.S. and you have a global audience. So some of your global listeners might be familiar with Deezer and other platforms like that. Um, but I think that once we start getting more people used to the idea of paying a monthly fee and, and listening to music on, on different platforms and not just ad-supported, that, that, I don't think that's a very good revenue model, but, but getting people to pay for, for, for their music, I think is going to be a, a huge change. And technology opens up so many doors to be able to have new revenue models to explore. And I think that's where the company I work for is doing a great job of it. I know there are many others in the music industry and many other companies that are doing the same, same great work in terms of embracing technology and working with it and still having a viable business because of it. Franklin, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us on IP Fridays. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast and I look forward to continuing listening to your show. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.